Welcome everyone to the Predictably Treacherous Podcast. In today's episode, we will be looking at the films of independent filmmaker Don Doler. There's a documentary about Don Doler called Blood, Boobs, and Beasts that I watched a few years back, and that is what inspired me to have a Don Doler episode on the podcast. The documentary is fun, it's light, there's no big revelations, but it's not a big investment either. Like a good B-movie, it's about 70-ish minutes long. Okay, so first let's talk a little bit about Don Doler himself. Here's what Wikipedia had to say about his early life. Quote, Doler was born in Baltimore, Maryland. When he was a child, his mother bought him a film projector, and one day he drew stick figures on a piece of scotch tape. He ran the tape through the projector, and just before the tape burned up inside of the projector, he saw the animated figures dance on the wall, and that's when he knew he wanted to make films. Isn't that special? Sounds like bullshit, actually. See, I, I don't know why there has to be this moment in his childhood when he knew he would be a filmmaker. I feel like this is looking back at your childhood when you already are a filmmaker and reinterpreting your childhood experiences through that lens. This reminds me a little bit uh, of that book, The Everything Store, um, about Amazon. Uh, apparently, Jeff Bezos asked the author how he was going to avoid the, quote, narrative fallacy when writing the book. So the narrative fallacy is the tendency to take a complex situation with lots of facts and weave it into an overly simplified story. I feel kind of what's that's what they're doing here. Um, they're taking Don Dollar's life, which is no doubt pretty complex. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then they're saying like, oh, it was obvious from this childhood memory that he wanted to be a filmmaker. So again, from Wikipedia, quote, in 1961, at the age of 15, Doler started a Mad Mad Magazine style fanzine called Wild. Mad had Alfred E. Newman as a mascot, so Doler used his middle school creation, Pro Junior, as Wild's mascot. In Wild's peak, it had contributors such as Jay Lynch, Art Spiegelman, and Skip Williamson, who later went on to be famous in the underground comics movement of the late 60s and early 70s. Okay, so as we see, before there was filmmaking, there was publishing. Okay. After Wild and Pro Junior, he published a film magazine, Cinemagic, again from Wikipedia. Quote, in the mid-1960s, Doler came up with an idea for a magazine for filmmakers. It would feature illustrated step-by-step -step articles for amateur special effects filmmakers inspired by his underground comics friends. Doler set off to publish the magazine on his own. Cinemagic featured articles by industry professionals and went on for 11 issues before being purchased by Starlog in 1979. You can watch the documentary Blood boobs and beasts to get all the details on Don Doler, link in the show notes, but now I'm going to take a look at his films. Okay, so after the success of his first film and the poor results of his second film, pressures from financial backers and distributors led to the inclusion of more blood and gore and nudity and swearing in the later films. So I'm going to be looking at um, Alien Factor, 1978, Fiend, 
1980, Night Beast, 1982, Galaxy Invader, 1985, Blood Massacre, 1988, and Alien Rampage, 1999. Then I'll, um, I'll say a few words about the Joe Ripple films. Joe Ripple is um, a colleague of Don Dolers. You, if you watch the movie, you'll see that. Um, he kind of takes over the directing in the later years, I guess, around about Alien Rampage or afterwards. So um, there are a couple films like uh, Vampire Sisters and Harvesters, which is just a remake of Blood Massacre. But Joe Ripple was a director on those, and they're totally different. Um, they're gory. They're more focused on gore and sexed up. Uh, they just seem like totally different movies to me. So even though these guys are, are linked a bit, um, I didn't go through those movies too much. Okay, so before we begin, a um, couple things to get out of the way. I did not go to film school. I learned all I know about screenwriting from reading Sid Field books. I don't know, maybe people like Sid Field or some don't. So check out his breakdown of screenplays uh, into three acts in the Paradigm section on Wikipedia. Link in the show notes. I'll try to break down movies into three acts. Um, I generally look at act one as the setup. So kind of focus on the first 10 minutes and then the plot point at the end of act one. So the plot point takes the narrative and spins it into a new direction. So at the end of the act, spin it into a new direction for the next act. And in act two, the confrontation generally runs from about 30 minutes to 90 minutes in a two-hour movie. These B-movies are strange. They're all 90 minutes or less, sometimes 60, 70 minutes. So the acts are a bit condensed. It's a bit harder to tell. But generally in the, in the, uh, the act two, we look at the midpoint halfway through the movie and the plot point at the end of act two, which spins the action in a new direction for the act three. And Act 3 is the resolution. For those of you like me who didn't go to film school and you need a bit of help with this, you may want to also check out the Script Notes podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, it's a great podcast about screenwriting. Okay, so let's dig in. Okay, The Alien Factor, 1978. So this is Dolor's first film. It has a beautiful 3 minute and 15 second opening credit sequence with uh, alien looking computer screens and space and unsettling music. You can tell a lot of work went into this. Like I feel like 70% of the work they put into the film was probably in the first 3 minutes of it. So in the first 10 minutes of the film, let's look at uh, there's a there's a couple and they're drinking and lightly making out in a car parked in the tall grass by a lake. It's late fall, it's daytime. A large creature comes out of the nowhere out of the bush and grabs a guy through the window of the car and he drags him from the car while this girl's screaming and she runs away. And then it shows kind of a sheriff driving on a country road on a CB. He's speaking with a deputy and he, you can overhear him saying a boy was killed and it looks like an animal attack and the girl's in shock. And then we see him drop off the girl and body uh, at a doctor's house in the country. There's great music throughout, especially during the non-talking scenes. It's very alien sounding. It seems like it might have been influenced by Forbidden Planet. You should check that out if you haven't seen it. It's a great film. Okay, so the mayor enters the scene and three guys that were friends with the victim show up and want to help. So the sheriff wants to get rid of them. 
Um, and then you see this strange spinning triangle of light that appears at the feet of the men, but they don't seem to really notice it. Okay, so that's the end of the first 10 minutes. So it's a pretty good setup, really. Um, there's an alien, he's killing dudes. They don't really know what it is. And then we see this other alien presence by these guys to indicate that like there's more to come. So now it's dusk. Um, there's a drunk riding his motorbike on the country road. And there's a couple at the lake. And the guy, he wants to make out. And the lady, she's just not interested. So he returns to his car while she walks around the lake. The spinning light that we saw earlier appears again and seems to change into a man-like figure with brown, sinewy skin. Um, she sees him from the bushes next to a large alien ship structure in a clearing. So she's watching him. He doesn't see her. Then she steps on a branch and he turns and looks at her really quickly and she screams and runs. But she gets hit by the drunk on the motorbike. That seems a little weird. Uh, the drunk gets up to check the girl, but the alien approaches, so the drunk just splits. And then the alien uses his powers to wipe the girl's memory. And the guy from the car finds her. She can't remember what happened. Okay, so now back in the clinic, there's an autopsy being done. And this is a plot point at the end of Act 1. Doesn't look like an animal attack. A journalist using a typewriter in the most ergonomically inadvisable way possible in her home. The typewriter sounds like hailstones on a tin roof. I don't remember typewriters sounding like this when I was young. Maybe I was living in the technological apex of the age of typing and I just didn't know it. The journalist calls the doctor and speaks with Ruth, who won't give her any information about the cause of death. In a sea of bad acting, the actress playing the doctor is putting on a bad acting clinic. It's more than just what she's saying. She's making these really screwed up faces. It's almost like she's having difficulty understanding and simultaneously seeing an object that's really close to her face. Hi, Ruth. Any clues to what happened? Well, I can't give you too much information yet. The two boys who found Rex seem to think it was done by a bear. Can you confirm that? Well, I suppose it's possible it was some sort of big animal. But we won't know until after the autopsy. No. No, I can't give you any more information right now. Well, I can't go to press without mentioning a likely cause of death. Ruth, that's when rumors start. Okay. Would it be fair to say that the likely cause of death at press time was an attack by a large animal? Oh, I'm sure it would be all right if you at least alerted everyone that a wild animal might be on the loose. Uh, it wouldn't hurt to have people on the lookout. Oh, no trouble, Edie. Okay. Goodbye. Bye-bye. It's strange to show a phone conversation and only hear one side at a time. At one point, Edie, the reporter, is asking Ruth a question but we don't hear Ruth's response and then Edie responds to Ruth's response that we didn't hear. It's pretty confusing. So now we're into act two, the confrontation. Three friends and a girl venture into the woods with rifles to search for the animal that killed the boy. Again, great music, mysterious, unsettling. 
They pass by a dead tree and there's an alien camouflage by the dark wood. The alien is tall and dark. It looks like a man wearing a jacket covered in tar. You have to be paying attention to see it. It's kind of meshed in with the wood. It attacks the three boys and kills them. The girl screams and the scene transitions. The scene was really well done, except for the killings, which look like Star Trek, the original series killings. You know, that is like implied killings with a close-up on the victim's face screaming. Downtown, small town, Sheriff is on the phone talking to the journalist, Edie, about the kids who were just killed. The sheriff and deputy plan on going into the forest that night to look for the animal. So now we're at some dude's house in the country. It's snowing. The spinning light, the alien, attacks the man. And then we're showing some kids playing with a ball by a school, but there's no snow on the ground. They stumble across a decayed body of the man who was attacked. Now, I'm not sure if this is another day. Um, Also, the body doesn't appear to have been moved, as it looks like the place where the man was killed but it was nowhere near a school, and the ground was covered in snow when the man was killed. Uh, Well, no matter, anyways, the body looks great. It's green and shrunken. I mean, don't worry about the details. So now we're shown Dr. Ruth. Dr. Ruth, (laughs) I never really thought about that. Um, She's speaking with the sheriff. She tells him that the body looks like it's aged rapidly and dehydrated. It looks similar to a disease that affects children but it can't be because the disease is progressive and this seemed to have happened really quickly, like a day or two, because people saw him in town a day or two earlier. So the mayor shows up. He's worried about these killings ruining a business deal for an amusement park. And the sheriff wants to call state police, but the mayor dissuades him. He doesn't want bad publicity. Let's listen to the clip. What the hell's going on, Jack? I wish I knew, Bert. You wish you knew? This kind of thing can give Perry Hill a bad name. And you're worried about that damned amusement park they want to build outside of town? Amusement park? Jack, we're talking about a $30 million entertainment complex. I mean, it can mean hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for this town. Yeah, and a 100,000 headaches, too. Look, Bert. I don't care about that damn complex, and I don't care about how much money it brings to you, to the town, or to anybody. All I know is we've got five killings on our hands, and I think we ought to call in the state police. Oh, Jack, don't talk like that. Whatever it is, you and Pete can solve it. You're our elected law officers. We don't need any outside help. Now, I want you to get cracking on this. And I want some answers, and I want them soon. The longer it takes to solve this, the more the chance of something leaking out. And I won't have any bad publicity. Especially not now. Whether you like it or not, Jack, this complex is going to mean a lot to this town. Okay, now it's nighttime and we're in a bar. There's a dude drinking beers from these little glasses. There's a 70s band playing. They play an entire song, and there are two girls dancing. It sounds pretty good, actually. Uh, the singer's dressed like Austin Powers, and the bassist looks like he should be playing bass for Death Clock. So Edie, the uh, 
the journalist, she was actually listening to this song earlier on when she was doing the hailstorm typing. Okay, so the dude leaves, he goes home, and he starts reading a monster magazine and drinking a beer in his room with his feet on the bed. It's so weird. He hears a noise, and he leaves his room to check it out. He goes down to the basement. It's dark. He turns the light on, and this giant Sasquatch-looking monster is right in front of him. He tries to shoot it, but he gets killed. So now Benjamin Zachary shows up at the mayor's house, and they have a, a fantastic interaction. Let's listen to the clip. Now, what can I do for you, Mr. Zachary? Well, this is going to sound a little strange, Mayor. I'm from over in Harford County. I work at the Garrett Observatory there. Oh, sure, I'm somewhat familiar with that. Anyway, two nights ago, I observed a small meteorite that did enter the atmosphere. I tracked it down as much as possible, and it seemingly hit the Earth. Well, by my estimation, it hit somewhere on the north side of your town. A meteor? Yes, that's why I came here. I'm somewhat of an, uh, an adventurer. I've dedicated my life to the study and research of strange phenomena. I've made a few expeditions to places like the Himalayas, the Amazon. Bigfoot and all that, huh? <laughs> right. Well, I guess when you come down to it, Mayor, I'm one of those people who believe that there are unknown life forms, both here on Earth and on other worlds. In fact, that's why I began working at the observatory. Hmm. This meteor. Nobody around here reported seeing or hearing anything. Well, I don't doubt that. It hit, that is, if it really did hit, around four in the morning. Man, like I said, it was very small to begin with. No, I'd say that it hit around eight to ten miles out in the hills. So it's not likely that anybody would have seen it in the first place. Sounds a little wild, a meteor landing here. Maybe landing. Oh, well, that's why I looked you up. I just wanted to let you know that I'll be poking around these hills for a couple of days, if that's all right with you. Oh, of course it's all right with me. But those hills are dangerous. We've had a lot of snow up there the last few days. I'm aware of that. I suppose I should warn you, Mr. Zachary. There's some sort of vicious animal loose around here. Several of our citizens have been killed in the past few days. I'm sorry to hear that. I'd like to know more about these killings, if you don't mind. Maybe I can help somehow. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. You see, I've got this pretty big business venture cooking for this town. Involves a huge entertainment complex being built right outside of Perry Hill. And these killings. Bad publicity. You know what I mean. Okay, so Benjamin Zachary, he works at the observatory. He observed a meteorite and he wants to look for it. And the mayor tells him about the killings. Tells him about the amusement park business venture. Okay, so now we're at the midpoint uh, of Act 2. So Benjamin Zachary and the mayor go into the woods, and they hike up the suspected crash site. So there's an alien ship and an injured alien. And the alien looks like Brutus on the cover of Dr. Ronald Chevalier's Brutus and Balzac novel in Gentleman Broncos. Great film. He's also sort of like a long-haired Andorian from Star Trek, the original series. The alien has long white hair with bangs and a wrinkled greenish face, but otherwise is like a man wearing a space uniform overalls like Scott Bakula in Enterprise. The alien communicates telepathically with Benjamin. 
So here's another plot point. The alien tells Benjamin that the ship is about to explode and that there are three alien creatures like animals and one who is cunning and a psychopath, the spinning energy triangle. They tell the sheriff, the reporter, and the doctors back at the sheriff's office. Benjamin proposes that he can kill the creatures with his special equipment. The mayor accepts the arrangement and gives Benjamin a couple of days to deal with the creatures. So now act three, the resolution. The reporter pulls her car up to the forest area and walks into the forest with a can of gasoline. She runs into Stephen, the doctor in the forest. While they're talking, the tall tar monster creature emerges and they run. As they fall and are about to be killed, some invisible force stops him. Benjamin emerges and explains that he used a high-pitched speaker to crack the outer shell of the tar monster. The creature looks more like an insect now than tar-like. So now Mary Jane arrives at the sheriff's office and she and the deputy have a conversation that reveals to the audience that high-pitched sounds like screaming may have saved the woman from becoming victims of previous attacks. The sheriff is driving to the mayor's house to talk with him about bringing in the state police when he sees Mary Jane running by scared. He stops his car and Mary Jane says the mayor is dead and the creature's chasing her. Then the creature emerges and they get in the car and they try to drive away but the car's skidding on the ice. So they make it to the mayor's house but the creature is right behind them. The creature is a person on meter high stilts in a hairy beast costume. It looks really cool actually. Um, it just moves really slowly. It's kind of silly. Benjamin arrives and he shoots the creature with a needle of poison that he extracted from the insect creature that he killed the night before. The sheriff gets a call from the observatory. He had called the previous day and left an inquiry about Benjamin Zachary who claimed to work there. So they have no Benjamin Zachary. So a little mystery. So now it's night. The reporter again wanders into the forest alone. She sees Mr. Zachary. He's having a fight with a lizard-like beast that is projected on the screen. He looks like he's getting destroyed and suddenly the beast collapses. Then the reporter approaches Benjamin, who's in the shadows. He tells her that he's also an alien and he was sent to kill the alien creatures that crashed here. In the fight, his human disguise was ruined and his true form would be too scary for her. She wants to see him and approaches, and he is ugly and scary. So the sheriff, not knowing that the ugly alien is Benjamin, shoots him to save Edie. And that's it. Kind of a rushed, weird ending, but um, well, it's not bad. All right, let's jump right into Fiend. So Fiend is 1980, Sondoler's second film. Okay, so the opening sequence is 3 minutes and 10 seconds. Um, a red spirit floating in a graveyard enters a grave and reanimates a corpse. That's it. There's a couple, of course, making out. And when the guy leaves to get a blanket from the car, why are they making out in a graveyard? The reanimated corpse grabs the woman by the back of the throat and steals her life energy. She, she glows red. And I guess it indicates like that he's stealing her life force. Then the reanimated corpse looks a little more human and a little less dead. Okay, so at least we get the premise. Okay, so now we see on screen it says Kingsville, April. Okay, so we're in a suburb. There's lots of families, lots of kids. It starts raining and everybody runs inside. 
The reanimated corpse walks up to a house with a for sale sign. He picks up the sign and rings the doorbell. So it's implied that, you know, he killed the owner and now he lives there. So now another on-screen, Milford, October. So a woman drops off her work colleague on a country road. Her colleague walks in a remote area over grass and dirt in heels. She bumps into Longfellow, that's the reanimated corpse, and he steals her life force. Okay, that's it. We're 10 minutes in. So, first 10 minutes, what's the impression? There's a reanimated corpse, he steals people's life forces. That's it. Okay, so now we get Longfellow arrives home in a car. He gets the cat some cat food. He goes to the basement and drinks some wine goes into a ritual room I don't know what to call it it's a it's a freak show room where he lights some candles and then sticks a knife into a picture of the woman that he recently killed on her way home from work and whose home he is now living in I think let's listen to how bad this is here's a clip Longfellow just stabbing the picture. It was was really, really ridiculous. Okay, now some dude in his car is coming home from work. So on the radio, they're talking about the recent killings. So then he argues with his wife about not liking the new neighbor, Longfellow. So now back to Longfellow. He's drinking wine and making soliloquies. And tomorrow we renew again. Here's the clip. And tomorrow, we shall renew ourselves again. Okay, so now we're outside of an A&P. Awesome. And there's a woman bringing groceries back to her VW bus. Longfellow follows her home. He attacks her and kills her. Now Longfellow kills Don Dollar's daughter out behind the house in the movie he does uh, an ambulance comes and picks her up this is a scene where he uses actual daughter he put her on the gurney and loaded her into the ambulance they made a big deal out of this in the movie I don't know it's fine okay so the guy who doesn't like Longfellow he's driving back with his wife and they see the ambulance they talk to a local and discover that the little girl is dead and the dude is pissed at Longfellow he says he should know something about it for some reason. And then later that night, the guy goes over to confront Longfellow. 
he and Longfellow are talking in Longfellow's house. And oh my God, Longfellow. This is a thing in the movie too. It's just like these couple of nerds who are huge fans of this movie and other Dolor films. They talk about having a drinking game where every time someone says Longfellow, you take a shot. I don't know. It's ridiculous. It just occurred to me. So he and Longfellow are talking in Longfellow's house and Longfellow tells the same story that he was listening to music with his assistant anything. Longfellow leaves the room to get some wine. The guy snoops around Longfellow's house. He sees some weird shit. It'll come up later. So later on, Longfellow chases some woman who's walking her dog in a forest behind the houses and he attacks her. And then some guy hears it and he comes out of his house and he, he comes over to rescue her. And the girl gets away and Longfellow kills the guy and then he kills the girl. So now the neighbor guy goes to see Fry at his office and he confronts him about the alibi that he provided for Longfellow. But nothing happens from that. Okay, now the neighbor guy tells his wife that he saw Longfellow. He was just looking outside. And Longfellow looked like he was 70 years old. Uh, and he tells a wife that he snuck around when he was in Longfellow's house and he saw pictures of women that were slashed up. And then in the next scene, Longfellow is seen looking out of his window at the neighbor's wife and taking a picture. Uh-oh. Longfellow leaves on a walk and a neighborhood kid is in a tree watching him and he follows him. So Longfellow meets Fry in the woods and kills Fry and the kid witnesses it. And then the kid runs off and Longfellow was unaware that the kid witnessed it. So now there's someone who's seen what Longfellow does and Longfellow hasn't killed him. So the neighbor guy picked up a book on demonology when he was out. He's reading it. <laughs> He's doing some research. And he discovers a clue about Longfellow. Someone in the book described a fiend. Uh, and the, the, the fiend feeds off people's life force. And he's forced to kill people and take their life force in order to stay alive. And apparently the fiend is named Dorian. And the neighbor remembers that the name of Longfellow's cat is Dorian. Uh-oh, he must be uh, the guy. All right, the neighbor goes to the graveyard at, uh, that Longfellow came from and talks with the caretaker. I just, I don't get this. Anyways, so the caretaker tells him that Longfellow died 12 years ago and happens to have a picture of him in his wallet. What was it doing there? So the neighbor buys the picture and says he'll photocopy it and send the guy back a copy. I don't know why they included that, but... Okay, so now the little boy, Jimmy, he comes over to tell the neighbor something, but the neighbor's not home. Neighbor goes over to see Jimmy, to, uh, to Jimmy's, to talk to him, and Jimmy is now scared and doesn't want to talk. Okay, so meanwhile, Longfellow calls the neighbor's wife. Uh, yeah, sort of, he says he's sick, right? And it's just... Uh, he calls the neighbor's wife. He says he's sick and he wants her to bring over some aspirin and she reluctantly agrees because she thinks he's kind of creepy. Um, this is the big showdown. The neighbor finally gets the kid, gets Jimmy to tell him that he witnessed Longfellow strangling Fry and the neighbor and Jimmy return to the neighbor's house to get the wife and call the cops. Meanwhile, the neighbor's wife is walking into Longfellow's and she wanders around his house and finds his hidden room with the candles and the pictures 
and she finally sees a picture of herself and she's horrified and she tries to leave and she bumps into the dead body of Fry. Then Longfellow emerges looking like, uh, like a corpse and he attacks her. And then the husband and Jimmy hear her screams from uh, the house and they run into Longfellow's house to rescue the wife. But the wife is dead. The neighbor attacks Longfellow and struggles with him. Jimmy grabs a sword from the wall and stabs Longfellow. And then the spirit leaves Longfellow and his lifeless body falls to the ground, rubbery. And the spirit leaves through the house and then disappears in the sky. The end. This movie was abysmal. I did not like Fiend. Uh, Just on all accounts. I didn't even... I had a real trouble finding like what what is the where are the plot points and what's happening in different acts and I I just it seemed like one big television episode like a giant mess like just um what do you say that like um just constantly ascending to epiphany and then that's it like like the plot of a television episode like a whole bunch of stuff happened, whole bunch, he just kills people, people start to find out, and then at the end, there's a big showdown. It just sucked. This one sucked. Okay, especially, it's really disappointing considering his, the first film, uh, Alien Factor. I, I liked it. I thought it was great. I mean, it's definitely low budget, but um, it was well done. The music, and the plot points, and uh, the intro, all this sort of stuff. This one, I didn't even really get into... Um, how bad the special effects were. It just looked awful. It looked like someone took um, a red marker uh, on the screen and kind of scrubbed around a little bit, and that that was the spirit. It just looked terrible. It looked really bad. Okay, so enough of that. Let's move on to Night Beast, 1982. So this one written and directed by Don Doler. The music by Rob Walsh and Jeffrey Abrams. That's J.J. Abrams at 16 years old. Yeah, big deal. Okay, so a spaceship flying through space collides with an asteroid, I think. It was hard to tell what was going on, but it seemed like that's what they were trying to show us. Okay, and then the ship crashes on Earth. An alien monster emerges from the ship, and then the ship explodes. The alien monster looks pretty cool. Three drunken hicks are sleeping nearby at a campsite, and one drunk witnesses the crash and the explosion. So meanwhile, the sheriff, I guess they saw too, uh, he gathers a posse to investigate the crash that several people in the town have witnessed, while the hicks head over to the crash site independently. The night beast makes short work of the hicks, vaporizing them with his ray gun. It's actually kind of cool. I like it. In a low-budget way, it's very cool. Um, Okay, then a car with two kids. These are Don Doler's kids, Greg and Kim. They're cute kids. Uh, They're in the backseat of the car. The car stops. The driver gets out to go take a leak. Okay, The night beast bludgeons him, and he's lying on the hood of the car, bloodied, and his eyes popped out. It's pretty cool. And the kids run off, and the beast gives chase. I don't know. The beast is, is great. They don't bother with, what's the beast's motivation? Who gives a shit? Just make them run after people and kill them. It's going to be awesome. And it was. It was good. Okay, the couple... Uh, sorry, there's a couple now making out in the house. The gal hears a noise outside, and the guy grabs his rifle, because everybody's got a gun. This is the U.S. Everybody's got a gun. And he heads out into the darkness to investigate. The guy doesn't see anything. 
and is about to head back in when the night beast grabs him and rips out his intestines. It's pretty cool. The gal, and she's like early 80s foxy, you know, she runs out screaming and attacks the night beast, but she's killed. Okay. The kids, Dolor's kids, uh, they witness this. And the poor kids, they're going to be so psychologically damaged. They saw a guy get his eye popped out and torn apart on a hood of a car. And now this guy gets his intestines ripped out. Hot 80s girl gets killed, you know. Um, So they run back, I guess back to the car. And the Night Beast gives chase and he vaporizes the car with his ray gun. Okay. So, like, it seems like we're into Act 2 now. (laughs) All right, the sheriff's posse. This is the confrontation. You know, they're they're going after the whatever the beast is. Um, sheriff's posse arrives at the crash site. The night beast. There's a battle. You know, the night beast opens fire, vaporizing several members of the posse. One dude charges at the night beast and gets bludgeoned by a backhand. And then the sheriff and the crew they they retreat basically. So now we're back at the sheriff's office. They get a call from, quote, George Michaels about a weird sighting. And he put the boom boom back in my heart. Okay, the sheriff and the female deputy investigate. They approach an old farmhouse. The night beast opens fire. Reinforcements arrive in the form of crack shot Bill Perkins and his son, played by Don Doler. I like when Doler appears in his early films he was actually in um fiend i don't think i mentioned that um he played the boyfriend of a girl who came over for music lessons with longfellow um just a little little quick quick scene and in this one yeah he plays the son of the guy he just it's cool seeing him because i'm used to seeing him like in a documentary he's older he's in his 50s like late 50s but Back when he did this, I guess it was about 30 years earlier. So, I don't know, he's 30-ish, something like that, you know. I don't know exactly his age, but the point is he's a lot younger. He looks different. Okay, Bill's son, Don Dolor, gets vaporized. And Bill manages to shoot the gun out of the Night Beast's hand. Okay, and then the attack's over. So now in the backyard with a swimming pool and a lady in a bikini swimming. So this is the mayor's place. The sheriff and the mayor are arguing about calling for reinforcements to go after the beast. The sheriff wants help, and the mayor is hesitant because of elections coming up. Now, you may recall that this is essentially the exact same plot as an alien factor, except um, substitute real estate deal for upcoming elections. It's even the same actors playing the sheriff and the mayor. <laughs> so... And I think it's not a coincidence. It's not like that they're actually intending to do a remake. But it's funny because I didn't really know that that's what they were doing until I got about this far in the movie. And I was like, well, what the hell's going on? Um, I think I looked it up. And yeah, it, yeah, it's obviously, it really is intended to be a remake. I don't know why they remade it. I guess this this may be, see, the, um, the documentary didn't really lend much insight into this, or at least... I, I, if it did, I missed it. But it did indicate that they had pressures from uh, producers and um, benefactors to sex up. Uh, so add sex, add nudity, add swearing, add more gore. So I wonder if they just they redid this thinking that, hey, we like that film. It did well. Fiend sucked and didn't do that well. Um, let's just redo Alien Factor. 
and we'll sex it up a little bit. We'll have some nudity, we'll have a bit more swearing, we'll get more action, less exposition. I don't know. Okay, uh, both of the doctors as well are played by the same actors as in Alien Factor. The sheriff and the doctor go into the woods to get the body of one of the posse that was killed, but it's gone. Okay, Don Leifert in this one plays Drago, a biker with a bad attitude. Okay, let's listen to the Drago introduction. Hey, Cinder, what brings you way out here away from your cozy little office? Keep moving, Drago, before I run you in for disturbing the peace. Hey, I'm scared to death. A big, tough sheriff might just try to take me off my bike. Huh? What about it, Cinder? You gonna take me off my bike? Stay out of my way, Drago. I'm in no mood for your crap. You know what I say, Sheriff? Go to hell. Okay, in one scene, he slaps around his girl and rips her top. Swearing, violent sex, all in one scene. Suddenly, Drago leaves, and the sheriff and a dude that has been seen Drago's girl, behind his back, of course, arrive, and we get some nudity. It's fairly pointless nudity. Like, we watch the girl change and pack her bags so she can be evacuated with the rest of the town. Then Drago, he's, he sees all this. He comes back, and he, after the sheriff and the dude leave, Drago comes back and goes into her house, and he confronts her. So he beats her up, and he chokes her to death. Or, or, or I think it is, anyway. It's hard to tell. Um, but it'll, it'll get confirmed later. But, um, it, yeah, anyways, he chokes her to death. Okay, so now back at the mayor's pool. Okay, there's foxy girls in bikinis and the governor. The sheriff shows up and they break up the party. At the doctor's house, the night beast arrives and starts killing guys who are dropping off dead bodies. The doctors flee into a basement and they're able to electrocute the night beast and escape before it wakes up. So now we're showing Drago drinking a beer in the forest when the dude that was seeing Drago's girl busts into the scene and attacks Drago for revenge. During the fight, the colors, it's strange, the colors are more on the sepia side and then suddenly change to cooler colors. I guess they had a problem with the film. So the dude's shirt is kind of a yellowish brown and then suddenly it's blue checked. It's just quality stuff. Okay, so the dude finally overpowers Drago and is smashing his head on the ground. It's pretty good, but he doesn't finish the job. Like, I really wish they had. Um, I guess they need him for more in the movie, but uh, Drago, like, you know, Drago just killed your girl, okay? It's really his girl. Um, and he would have killed the dude. He should have smashed the dude's head into pulp. I don't, I don't know, just, just show it. Be ballsy. Okay, now the sheriff and the female deputy find the guy who got his intestines ripped out in the road, uh, and the night beast approaches them. They shoot and flee. The sheriff gets injured, just in the leg, but they manage to get away and they, they go to the doctor's house. There's no doctor, so the female deputy has to take care of the sheriff. So she takes off his pants to patch him up. Then she undresses and takes a shower, and she comes back in a towel, and they do it. So you got to sex it up, right? So apparently in the documentary, Don Dollar talks about this, that apparently this was Don Dollar's mother's hairdresser, the woman who did this scene. It's pretty cool. So Dollar was saying that he's too embarrassed to ask her to do a nude scene. So he had someone else ask her. 
and uh, it may have been Joe Ripple, I'm not really sure. Um, but she, she was cool with it. So she gets totally naked, and she doesn't look shy about it. She looks like she's into it. It's not the most glamorous sex scene, um, but good for her. I think she looks great. She's just a very average chick, but she looks good. She looks very good. The sheriff looks really dumpy, and it's really off-putting, but yeah, well, whatever, you know. Okay, so back at the mayor's, this Mary Jane is a fox. The actress is uh, Eleanor Herman, and she's now a, a writer, actually. Check out her Twitter. It's in the uh, show notes. She writes book about books about history and specifically like the history of royals, like kings and queens. Um, looks pretty good. She looks good now, too. The doctor arrives and tells them to evacuate immediately. After he leaves, they're killed by the night beast. The sheriff shows up and discovers the dead bodies. Okay, so now we're into Act 3, the resolution. Back at the sheriff's office, they learn that the state police have not been notified of the situation. They're going to evacuate, but the dude who has seen Drago's girl suggests that they try to electrocute it and uh, the rest buy in. So they plan to set up a trap at the doctor's house. Drago shows up and attacks the female deputy when she's alone. The sheriff hears the struggle and investigates, but Drago attacks him and takes his gun. Then, as Drago is about to execute the sheriff, the guy who has seen Drago's girl shoots Drago. So he finally kills him. Now, it would have been easier if he just smashed his skull when they were in the forest fighting. But anyways... So now they have an industrial, uh, what they call an industrial coil. It actually is pretty awesome. It's a cool looking thing. So the female, they want to get something really like big and powerful that will cause a big electric shock so they kill the, the night beast. The female deputy is now in a sexier outfit because her police uniform ripped in the fight with Drago. Steven, the doctor, has a shotgun. And I suddenly see the neighbor from Fiend. I and I don't remember him being in the movie up to this point. So that was kind of a strange feeling. The night beast grabs Stephen and kills him. The neighbor, sheriff, and female deputy start shooting at the night beast. The neighbor, it's incredible. He's lying prone, shooting, then action rollover, reloads, and shoots again. Now remember that the night beast doesn't have a weapon. So I'm not sure why the action roll, like he's not being shot at. You would do an action roll if you're being shot at and you want to reposition. He's not being shot at. Like, what is he doing? Okay, so they finally lure the night beast into the electrical wires and manage to electrocute it and it explodes. So the dude who has seen Drago's girl gets electrocuted in the process. The end. Pan to the sky and roll credits. He really likes to, you know, the endings for these movies are so fast. Suddenly you're like, whoa, what happened? End credits. All right. So that one was good. I actually, you know, I said I liked Alien Factor a lot, and I did. But I also like Night Beast a lot. I, And I'm not sure. I might like it more than Alien Factor. But um, it's really good anyway. Well, it should be. It's the same goddamn movie. All right. So let's look at the uh, the Galaxy Invader. 1985, back in the uh, the Wayback Machine here. Okay, so Act 1. 
something crashes from the sky. So we are shown from the point of view of something leaving the crash site. So the point of view of the thing leaving the crash site, we're looking out of its eyes. And now a kid in a phone booth calls a sleeping professor, the mayor from the previous films, that's who it is. Um, he calls him early in the morning. I was in your class. You like UFOs? I saw one. And they arranged to meet in a kid's small town. It's about five hours away, something like that. So now we're showing a young couple in the kitchen. She is dead sexy. Um, she's got a 80s pink cotton lounge slash exercise wear, short shorts, midriff bearing, and big frizzy bangs. She looks really good. They hear something. He grabs a knife. What, no gun? What, where's your gun? They slowly enter the basement, real slow and tense. They look around, another noise, and then the galaxy invader jumps out from the shadows. The dude fights it with a knife and a shovel, but it smacks him unconscious. All the beasts do that in these movies. They, they just backhand people or, or you know smack them front or back. She hits it with a lamp, and then she gets backhanded unconscious, and it walks out. So it looks kind of like, start with uh, the Gorn from Star Trek, but he's, he's darker around the eyes, darker around the eyes, and he doesn't hiss. And more of a normal size man shape, as opposed to a, like a hulking beastly man like the Gorn. And he has a flatter face, not a long dog-like face, He's basically a man in a green costume. That's that's it. So that's the end of the first 10 minutes. So it's a good intro. Like we, you know, there's a galaxy invader and he kills people. That's it. That's all you need to know. Okay, this is a great scene. Uh, there's so much here. There's a trashy family at breakfast. The mom is cooking eggs. There's 50s dialogue by the father. As long as you're living under my roof... And he tells the wife to shut up all the time. Shut up! The son, JJ, who's a doctor from previous films, he looks like he's 40 years old. He looks like he's about five years younger than the father. Uh, their 25-year-old daughter, Carol, is in a white tank top with no bra. She's mouthy and defiant. She wants to leave so she can meet her boyfriend. The father, Joe, is a drunk and he's abusive, and he's wearing an undershirt with a giant rip in the chest. Um, he doesn't like the boyfriend's father, and he doesn't want Carol to go to him. So he slaps her. She throws a glass of water in his face and then leaves. He gets his shotgun, again, there's the guns, and goes after her. So the mother tells the 40-year-old son, JJ, to go, go after the father, bring him back here. Uh... So outside, Carol, the daughter, runs past the galaxy invader. Joe sees the galaxy invader. He shoots it with his shotgun. It runs away. It leaves glowing, pulsing white orb behind. Some sort of energy thing. I don't really know what it is. It's a ball that glows, like a big glowy pearls type thing. So Carol meets her boyfriend. They want to get married. He wants her to get away from her father, and she doesn't want to leave her mom and her sister with him. She doesn't mention her brother. <laughs> okay. So now the professor meets the kid. They establish that no one seems to know about the UFO crash. So they hike into the trees to look for the crash site. The dialogue is incredible. Very contrived. 
Okay, JJ and Joe bring the orb back to the house. Carol and the boyfriend show up. The boyfriend confronts Joe. Joe threatens the boyfriend with the shotgun. The boyfriend's like, okay, I'll leave, I'll leave. Whoa, what's that? Pointing at the orb. So JJ explains, okay, it's this green man. Dad shot him. He dropped the orb. Father's all, shut up, JJ. And I don't want anyone to know. It's a little late. Like, he just told everybody. So then there's the next plot point. This guy, uh, Frank, Don Lifert, he's something. He shows up at the farmhouse. Uh, so first of all, Joe called Frank. It's like, it's like Frank's gonna, he's a big business guy. He'll know. So Frank shows up, and uh, he shows up to meet Joe and see the orb. Frank puts it together that the orb and the green man came from the UFO that he heard about from one of his criminal associates. Frank thinks if they catch the green man, they can make a lot of dough. Let's listen to this clip. You know, I think there's something to what you say, and I'll tell you why. Now, now Tom Gibbons told me this morning that he saw a fireball fall out of the sky. All right. So let's say there is a green man. And he dropped this, uh, this here thing. He did! He did! Hi. You say this thing's worth a lot of money, and you're probably right. But you know what, Joe? This green man would be worth one hell of a lot more money if we got it to the right people. Okay, so Frank leaves. JJ is going to put the ore back in the garage when he hears a noise. It's the Galaxy Invader, and it tases JJ. Okay, so act two, the confrontation. We're in a bar. Frank and his lady, Vicky, arrive. Frank proposes to the entire bar that they need a posse to hunt something that night. Something big. Big bucks. Need guys with guns. Joe returns home to find JJ unconscious and the orb missing. That night, the posse shows up outside Joe's and they set off to hunt the galaxy invader. Meanwhile, David and the professor call off the search and go to the bar. They overhear Vicky bragging about the spaceman, and she tells them where the posse is searching for him. They catch the galaxy, the posse that is, they catch the galaxy invader in a nighttime forest shootout. The galaxy invader's weapon shoots like fireworks. It looks terrible. Four of the rednecks get killed. They tie up the galaxy invader and lock him in Joe's garage. So this is the midpoint. So David and the prof arrive at the garage and untie the galaxy invader. The three make a break for it and the prof gets shot dead by Frank. Then the galaxy invader shoots Frank before Frank can shoot David and David flees. Then Joe shoots the galaxy invader and he goes down. Joe takes his gun, the galaxy invader's gun. I forgot to mention, uh, the kid, I think that's Don Dollar's son, Greg. Anyways, the kid with the prof. So now Carol finds Steve in the woods and convinces him to come with her to get her boyfriend so that they can stop Joe. The three make plans to get the orb and the gun from Joe and return it to the Galaxy Invaders so that he'll leave them alone. Makes sense. He seems to be after those things, so, all right. Now they have a pointless, creepy scene. This is a pretty good scene, but it's kind of pointless. So that night, Carol wakes from her sleep and wanders down to the basement. She moves around slowly in the dark until the galaxy invader emerges from the shadows, and she freaks out. He runs. 
scenes seem to have absolutely no other purpose than just for a cheap scare. The next day, Joe awakes, awakens on the couch with his gun, still wearing the same undershirt with a large hole in the chest and the stomach. This guy must stink. He goes outside and walks around looking for anyone in his family, but they're all gone. The family's in the woods meeting the boyfriend and David. They plan to go back to the house to get the gun from Joe. Annie is reluctant to go. They have to convince her. She's Don Dollar's daughter, so she needs a spotlight scene, because it was pointless otherwise. So back at the house, Vicky arrives looking for Frank. Joe says he's in the woods and then tries to rape Vicky. <laughs> he's a hell of a guy. She runs and he shoots her with the ray gun. Then he moves her body out of sight and goes back inside and gets drunk and passes out. <laughs> Incredible. Okay, so now act three, the conclusion. The team arrives and easily takes the gun and orb from Joe because he's unconscious. Michael, David, and Carol go into the woods looking for the galaxy invader to return the gun. Long pointless scene, scene with them wandering through the woods. It's really strange. Like, like, I mean, this goes on for a minute or two. They're wandering through the woods. And then back at the house, Frank wakes up with the remaining family sitting around him. He's pissed. He wants to know where the gun is. They won't let him have it. Or Sorry, they won't let him leave. So he pushes Ethel and Annie aside. And JJ slow motion slugs him with a left cross. And he gut punches JJ. And then he's after them. Joe immediately catches up with them outside because apparently they were doing circles 100 meters from the farmhouse. So he has them cornered at the edge of, the, of some kind of precipice. Suddenly there's a big precipice in this forest. Uh, the music is really good. A galaxy invader shows up and Joe shoots him with the rifle and then the ray gun. And the boyfriend takes the opportunity to jump Joe. They fight and the family just stands there watching. Joe, he gets on the boyfriend and is choking him to death. Everyone is just standing there watching. And finally, Ethel picks up the rifle and smashes Joe in the back of the head. It's really slow motion. She winds up like a baseball bat and smashes him with the butt of the, the rifle. Joe goes flying off the cliff. It's like in Raiders of the Lost Ark um, when they have the tanks fall over the side of the mountain and it's like a rag doll. It kind of looks like that. Um, but it's only about 50 meters. So both he and the galaxy invader are dead. Roll the sad piano music. End of the film. Yeah, another quick ending. Okay. So that one, eh, so-so. You know, I, I got that one free, that movie, on, uh, not free. It was one of the, like... I bought this Mill Creek Entertainment 50-pack. I like those. I mean, there are a lot of just terrible movies, but there's a couple good ones usually. And they're like 30 bucks since 50 films. It's, it's kind of neat. But Galaxy Invader was one of them. So that was where I first discovered it. First discovered any of the Don Dollar movies. And it's it's okay, but got me interested enough in his other stuff. So, Okay, let's talk about Blood Massacre, 1988. Um, This film was different from the first three. The first three were like in a sci-fi fantasy realm. Um, B-movie, sci-fi fantasy. That's pretty good. Like, if you like that genre, you're okay. This film is more in the, I don't know what you call it, I guess. I mean, it, it is um, fantasy as well, but 
there's no sci-fi factor to it, right? It's gore, it's horror, horror gore, B-movie horror gore, I guess. It's a bit different. So, George Stover, uh, who plays Rizzo, the doctor from the previous films, he enters a dive bar and acts like a dick. He orders a beer, then he tells the waitress to F off, and he gets kicked out. So later on, when the bouncer who kicked him out gets into his car to leave, Rizzo is in the back seat, and he chokes the guy to death with some rope. The bouncer looks like Chris Christie. Okay. A little. Then Rizzo re-enters the bar at closing time, and he stabs to death this woman that he was flirting with the first time he was in the bar. So, I don't know. What, what is the point of this? Okay, so... No, Rizzo's a bad guy. He likes killing people. Okay, the art student, sorry, an art student named Bonnie, driving in a top-down Cobra, um, she arrives at some house in the country to inquire about a room for rent. This seems really improbable. <laughs> she speaks with a hot, a really hot chick in a bikini who somehow lives there. Um, there's some creepy guy who has blood on his shirt. Um, and he says he was working with his hogs and he starts making inappropriate jokes with Bonnie about how if he poses in the nude, he charges extra. It's just, it's too much. This isn't very well, it's it's just so unbelievable. Okay, now Rizzo, Jimmy, Jimmy's brother and Monica, these are all the robbers. They arrive at a savings and loan office, but they're squabbling over it being too busy and secured with cameras then Rizzo, he's jazzed up. He wants to rob somewhere. He's like, I just want to do something. And he sees a Roxy video, which is great. It's like an old video store. Kind of reminds me of the 80s. I mean, it should. This is 1988. When all the video stores were like, you had those little, those Velcro circles that were in front of the videos on the shelf. And you pull those off and take it to the counter and then they'd give you the video. Anyways, he sees a Roxy video um, and he just, he just goes inside. The rest just follow him. And inside, Rizzo picks up a movie off the shelf that's Galaxy Invader. Uh, then they pull out their guns and their knives and they rob the place and its customers. The store clerk, uh, a woman, tries to be a hero and grab a gun, but the brother shoots her and they flee the scene. It's dark now, suddenly, um, and they drive away. It was daytime when they entered, it's nighttime when they left, even though it was five minutes. As an aside, um, I read an article recently the last blockbuster video in north america is in portland oregon now i put a link in the show notes i read on twitter or somewhere that there is talk of turning it into a museum but i can't find the article on that so it's unconfirmed Um, back in the aughts i used to buy previously viewed dvds at the uh a couple of blockbuster and rogers video locations on Eglinton East uh, at Young and uh, a location at Young just north of St. Clair for anybody who's in the Toronto area. All right, plot point. Uh, so the car that they're getting away in it runs out of gas. Uh, they think that there's a, a gas tank took a bullet and it leaked out or something. So the brother and Monica hike out to the recent gas station they pass uh, that they passed on the way back to get gas even though it's going to leak out. Okay, a car drives by, and they hijack it. They pick up, then with the car that they hijack, they, they pick up Rizzo um, and the dude, 
and the four of them decide to keep Liz, the driver, kind of hot, as a hostage and drive to her family home, right? So that was pretty good. I like that plot point because you really don't know where this movie's going. You're like, oh, the robbers are getting away. What's going on? But then when they meet Liz, this turns the story in a new direction. So now we're in act two, the confrontation. They drive to Liz's family home. Liz doesn't seem scared at all. It's kind of kind of weird. She seems aroused, actually, at the mention of violence. The brother is constantly telling Rizzo to back off of killing and being violent. Rizzo wants to kill everybody. Rizzo threatens to slice Liz's neck, and she seems to become very aroused. Um, they enter the home, and Liz's sister is doing some kind of 20-minute workout. She was the uh, girl in the bikini that Bonnie met earlier. She's super hot. Um, the father, Howard, sounds a little like Jimmy Stewart. Uh, it's more like if Bernie Sanders doing Jimmy Stewart. The mom looks like she's meant to be mentally unstable and potentially psychotic. She's the bad acting doctor from previous films. So Rizzo knocks out the hot sister. He punches her and leaves her in another room. The mom asks Liz what's happening and who the visitors are. Liz says maybe bank robbers. The mom immediately says she has to get uh, food from the root cellar. The brother accompanies her. Rizzo has already wandered down there, and there seem to be implements of murder and torture there. So that's interesting. So soon Rizzo and the brother get into a fight. Liz is so turned on by it that the camera keeps showing her wide-eyed and mouth agasp. Jimmy fires his gun to stop the fight, and the hot sister wakes up. Liz makes a play for the brother. Monica doesn't like this, and she breaks it up. Liz asks if she can take a shower, and Monica sends her upstairs with Rizzo to watch her. Um, Liz likes it. She showers, and Rizzo watches, and she likes it. After the shower, she takes off her towel in front of Rizzo and gets a nightgown on, then comes on to Rizzo. He's seduced, and they are kissing on the bed. Suddenly, a cop is out on the road somewhere, and a local stops to see if he can assist, and the cop asks him questions. He's looking for the bank robbers. The local suggests the Parker house. That's Liz's family. So back to Rizzo and Liz on the bed making out, and they're, they're cutting each other, and like there's blood everywhere. It's just, it's just not my bag. It's really stupid, actually. Um, then the cop arrives, and the old man gets uh, rid of the cop pretty easily. I just mean, uh, tells him, no, nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. And the cop leaves. So now we're at the midpoint. After the old man gets rid of the cop, the bank robbers realize they have to get a move on because the cops are after them. Monica watches the family while the three guys head up to the car with some stuff from the house. There's a dead body in the trunk. This is the exact midpoint. This is when they realize that the family's all fucked up and they better get out of there. So there's a dead body in the trunk. It belongs to a psychiatrist from the local mental hospital. So it turns out that Liz is an escaped patient and she's a killer. Lucky thing, the body had paperwork on it which identified who it was and where it came from. The boys rush back to the house and look for Monica, but she's not there and the family's gone too. In searching for Monica, they find a girl tied up in the closet. It's Bonnie, who rented the room at the beginning of the movie. She runs out of the closet and says the family's crazy and she's got to get out of there. She runs out of the house. 
So the boys leave the house and the old man shoots at them with a shotgun. He gets Jimmy in the arm, but Jimmy's okay. Meanwhile, Jimmy's new in town. Meanwhile, the cop is still on the property looking around. So here's the shooting. After Jimmy's shot, they don't really take cover, but the shooting stops anyway. And I, I didn't really get why that happened. Like after Jimmy got shot, um, it's, it's like that scene served its purpose. And you just thought, well, we'll just stop shooting at this point. But nobody took cover. There was no reason for the shooting to stop. Anyways, okay, so the boys find the hot sister. She's acting like the family's crazy, but she's not crazy, and she wants to help them escape uh, her wacky family. She tells them her family are cannibals, but she's not like her family, and she wants to help them. She tells them where there's a car. Rizzo and Jimmy's brother go to look for the car, and Jimmy and the hot girl stay. And when Jimmy said he trusted her, she gave him a look. And now they start making out, okay? So out in the woods, the officer runs into the old man who tells the officer that he should have left when he had the chance. Then his wife and daughter jump out and knock the officer to the ground. It's dark, so it's hard to see what's happening exactly. But once he's on the ground, they start stabbing the shit out of him and there's blood everywhere. So he's dead. Okay, so the hot girl goes inside the house for a minute and leaves Jimmy on the porch. Then she comes back out and it, the shot shows her lower legs. She's, she's got these ballet shoes on so she can sneak up on him. And then as she sneaks up on him, she uses this sickle to lop off his head. So then Liz is chasing after the girl who rented the room and she stabs her with this wooden stake and it's right through the girl's torso so she dies. Um... Rizzo and the brother, they find the car, but there's no keys. The brother says, Jimmy's got the keys, but I'm not clear on why or how that happened. Like, why does Jimmy have the keys? Was this their car from before? Because th I thought this was a new car. Anyways, so Rizzo goes back to get the keys. So then the brother is alone and the mom comes out of nowhere and stabs the crap out of him. Okay. So here's a plot point. Rizzo finds Jimmy's body now and has a mini freak out. So now Rizzo is the only robber left because we saw, I didn't mention earlier, Monica being eaten by the old man in the root cellar. Liz appears and begins chasing Rizzo. He escapes her and somehow finds some building that has tools in it and he picks up a tool and it looks like he's going to mount the rebellion. Rizzo has been mentioning all throughout the film how Nom, and he misses Nom, and he likes killing, like he liked killing in Nom. Two or three times he's mentioned it to Jimmy to reenact his Nom experience. This is the total, um, commando scene, which we'll get into. Uh, you know, in commando, when he, he goes out behind that shed, and he gets like all these weapons from it, it's kind of similar to that. The shed suddenly in the middle of nowhere, and Rizzo's making tools. So Rizzo's been working all through the night, and now it's morning. And I guess he was setting up traps in the forest a la Dutch and Predator. There's no montage, but it does get its own musical sequence. That night, uh, when everyone goes out hunting for Rizzo, he first encounters the old man, and he says, Hey, asshole! And the old man looks at him, and he fires a circular saw blade right into the guy's stomach. Then he fires it again and he kills him. So next is Liz. 
she comes out of the house looking for Rizzo and he set up a bomb as she walks into it and it blows up and she's on the ground and she looks dead so Rizzo goes over and turns over her body so she's on her back and her eyes open and then she starts to choke Rizzo and Rizzo stabs her and she's dead but no she wakes up again and comes after Rizzo and the old man wakes up and pulls out the blade and he comes after Rizzo Rizzo runs away he gets caught in one of his own traps and now he's hanging upside down from a tree Liz finds him hanging from the tree she asks him if he'll stay as her boyfriend forever he agrees he's screaming and then she rips off her face so does the old man and they are actually these crazy looking monsters and then she begins stabbing Rizzo to death now the family's in the home the mother's making soup and the daughters are putting makeup on and someone comes to the door and says hey got a room to rent the end uh yeah so the whole movie it's horror whatever um and then suddenly at the end they're like uh let's make it sci-fi i don't know where that came from the monster thing anyways that's fine and this one at least I thought it was going to end right at Rizzo's death, like all the other movies, like abrupt ending. But then they went back and they lingered for a couple minutes in a family home. And I found myself wishing they did just end it at Rizzo's death because it kind of sucked after that. So, Alien Factor 2, Alien Rampage, 1999. Uh, BTW, I like when movies are sequels and they give them this extended title that sucks. And it's really stupid. Act one, setup. First 10 minutes. What do we got? So we're shown several, this one's a bit different. We're showing several individual storylines and we jump back and forth between them. So, number one, FBI guys chasing a suspect in mid sized cars on country roads and running through the forest, X Files style. They're reporting the chase to some important guys in suits in a remote office. Number two, clumsy-looking but well-meaning deputies dispatched to arrest three local bikers who appear to, appear to be one-dimensional thugs who squabble amongst themselves. Okay. Third thing, a couple from the city stop in a local restaurant to ask for directions back to the highway. All right. Totally relatable stories. X-Files, bumbling deputies, couple from the city. That's the end of the first 10 minutes. Then the storylines start to converge. So after a while, the FBI guys get tired of chasing the suspect, so they shoot her in the back, and she's an alien. Well, okay, she's not really. Um, we'll just call her an alien. She's an alien. Just look at her. She's an alien. One FBI guy heads back to the car to get medical help for the suspect, and the other agent sticks with the suspect and calls the important guys in suits to update them. The FBI guy notices a strange device on the, quote, alien, and when he touches it, a cool-looking alien in a ship in the forest awakens and initiates a large energy barrier over the entire town. Act 2, The Confrontation. This is where everybody starts to encounter the energy barrier. The FBI guy, played by Joe Ripple, is the first casualty of the energy barrier. This is a thing that he seems to like to do in the movies too, Joe Ripple. He seems to like to get killed. And usually pretty like violently. Um, in a couple of movies, or one of them at least, I think it's the Harvesters, he gets stabbed in the eye with a knife. It's, it's kind of gruesome. 
Um, anyways, he's the first to go. Um, he attempts to run through the energy barrier, and he's kind of burnt like this charred, smoking corpse. It looks pretty good, actually. The bumbling deputies just pulled up on the scene and witnessed the demise. So now the city couple is heading out of town when they approach the barrier. They stop the car and some redneck pulls up behind them. The redneck gets out of his truck and foolishly he walks up to the barrier, touches it, and he's roasted. And the actress who plays Lisa, the female of the city couple, she is hot, hot, hot. Jamie Coleman. Um, she's on Twitter. I think she's now a healing practitioner. Yeah, she's very nice looking. And uh, she looks good now, too, on Twitter. Okay, now it's the biker's turn to encounter the energy barrier. The gang is three guys and two gals. The one guy, without a gal, decides to approach the energy barrier, but the leader stops him and throws a wrench into the barrier. Like, he literally throws a wrench. I love that metaphor. And they witness the power of what they are dealing with when the wrench is blasted. But I guess it was this guy's destiny to die anyway because the cool-looking alien from the ship slow walks his way to their camp and the lonely biker gets it with a laser before he can speed off on his bike. There are some ex exposition scenes where gloriously poor acting is really on display. Let's listen to a clip. So what do we got, Doc? Well, she's stable as far as I can tell. Of course, that's no guarantee that she'll survive. We won't know more until we run all the tests. Will you get on that right away? Is she human, Miles? Appears to be. You know, I'd sure like to slice her open and get a look inside. Oh, now that's morbid. Only kidding, Henry. Just keep her breathing, Doc, and keep me posted. Okay. This is a scene where a doctor is giving an update to the sheriff and the mayor about an alien woman. The doctor is really stiff and unemotional. In unrelated weirdness, the mayor's got this out-of-place tensor bandage covering his left forearm and wrist. The way he's standing, he's hiding it so you don't notice it at first, but once you do, it's really distracting. And when he's walking and talking with the sheriff, he has his hands in his pockets and his sleeves are rolled up three-quarter length and he looks like a sandbag torso with hay-stuffed arms. It's bizarre. I wonder if the actor just showed up for filming with the bandage and they were like, oh, okay. I guess this is what makes a B-movie uh, poor attention to detail, you know, as well as a poor acting and dialogue and story. The sheriff sends her staff out to the suburbs of town to bring everyone to downtown for their own safety, since the alien is on the loose and quite dangerous. Then another poor acting clinic was put on during a scene between the sheriff and Agent Love. Let's listen to the clip. How's my suspect? What's her condition? Fair. Agent Love, it looks like we're stuck with you, so you and I are going to have to work together. I guess so. Then you better come clean with me. Sheriff, I've been straight with you. Just cut the bull. I don't have the patience for any of your FBI games. You're either going to be cooperative, or I will throw you in one of those jail cells back there. You can't do that. You try me. So the sheriff demands answers. So now we're at the midpoint. Two deputies enter the restaurant that the couple visited earlier and discover several massacred bodies. 
Then the bikers show up at the sheriff's office and describe how the monster chased and killed one of them. Then the sheriff and Agent Love visit the alien suspect for answers. This is the midpoint here. The point when they realize that they are being hunted by the beast who's looking for the alien FBI suspect. This is conveyed by the alien who grabs a female doctor's neck and speaks through her. Let's listen to the clip. The Keltron protector will not stop until it is retrieved. Enables the vessel's drive. The protector is protrieved and destroyed the enemy. What is going on? Oh my God. She's using the nurse as a way to speak to us. Who are you? Where do you come from? Protector must retrieve Keltron. Protector? Biogenetic cyborg programmed to destroy enemy forces. Why did you take the uranium? Needed to complete journey. Malfunction aboard vessel. What does she mean by vessel? I don't think she beamed down. It has to be her spacecraft. Probably where she was headed when we shot her. This gets better and better. What is this wall of energy around us? Electromagnetic field. Time displacement of sector within. I don't understand. Are you saying this area is displaced within a time warp? Displacement within field. Effect reverts when field is deactivated. What does that mean? I'll be damned. This is incredible. Protector will retrieve device and annihilate all life forms on planet. What? She tells the audience exactly what's happening. Then the sheriff and agent love discuss what their plan of attack needs to be. Let's listen to that clip. What does all this mean? This field surrounding us, if I'm understanding this correctly, has created a black hole effect. A sort of altered time dimension, which is why we can't get out. Great. Then that means the worst is yet to come. Maybe not. Not if we can find that ship and put it out of commission. Look, Sheriff, I don't have all the answers, but it seems to me like her ship is the key to all this. All right, okay, we find her ship, then what? We have to destroy it. It's got to be the source of this electromagnetic field. It has to. Destroy it how? Right, so they've decided they need to find the ship and destroy it. Fortunately, the guy of the couple happens to be a, mun a munitions expert. That's, that's always, that seems to work in every movie. There was an electrical expert in one movie, now it's a munitions expert. There was a guy who was a crack shot. Uh, he wasn't crucial. But the electrical is parallel to this. The electrical expert, the munitions expert, same thing. Okay, that night, the sheriff, a couple of deputies, the FBI agent, Agent Love, and munitions expert, enter the forest to look for the ship uh, while the rest of the town gets hammered in a local pub. The sheriff's crew find bodies of the bikers uh, near there. They discover the ship. Suddenly, there's this misplaced, upbeat adventure track followed by one of the great lines in all the Don Dollar films. Let's listen. the alien bashes the door down and begins blasting people with his laser. This reminded me of the scene in The Terminator 
where Reese is dreaming of home and a Terminator enters the compound and the dogs start barking at him and he waves a heavy laser machine gun back and forth, killing everyone. He's about to kill the deputy and the hot woman of the couple when he stops and returns to his ship. This was triggered by the munitions guy stepping on the ship like elevator platform. Then moments later, the alien shows up at the ship and a laser gun battle commences. I don't know how he got there so quickly because he walks really slowly. The sheriff's crew needs to retreat as their bullets have no effect on the alien. The FBI guy suggests that they try to draw the alien away from the ship so that they can blow it up. But what could they use as bait? He reveals the device that he took from the female alien at the beginning, which seems to have kicked off this whole adventure. This is the plot point at the end of Act 2. So Act 3, the resolution. The alien blasts the FBI guy, and the crew runs away. The alien grabs the device. Munitions guy says, fuck it. He grabs the C4 and enters the ship. The sheriff's crew provides cover. Munitions guy plants the bomb and gets off the ship, but he gets blasted. Alien gets back on the ship, and sheriff grabs the detonator from dead munitions guy and blows up the ship as it takes off. One really cool thing is that the battle was at night, but after the ship explodes and the barrier is gone, it's daytime. It seems that they're back at the time that the barrier was erected, as predicted by the female alien early on. I like that, actually. That was, that was a cool um, idea. In the final scene, the doctor is about to perform the autopsy on the female alien when she turns her head to the camera all bug-eyed. I don't know. It's kind of lame. The end. So that's all the films I'm going to review here. Um, you know, I, I did watch Harvesters, and I did watch Vampire Sisters. I just... I couldn't even, I'm not going to review them. They're just not my bag. I, they don't interest me at all. So let's leave it at that. Okay, so here are my recommendations. So watch The Alien Factor. That's very good. Watch Night Beast. That's very good. And I guess, I don't know, I guess watch Blood, uh, sorry, Blood Massacre. Um, you know, I didn't like it, but it's just... It gives you a better sense of the full spectrum of movies. Um, and watch the documentary, Blood, Booms and Blood, Boobs, and Beasts. That's, it'll give you a more rounded picture of Don Doler and his career. Yeah, as I said, the, the later films that I didn't review here, like The Harvesters, the Vampire Sisters, etc. There are a few other ones I, I didn't watch. Uh, these were directed by Joe Ripple. Uh, so he kind of took over directing duties towards the end. I guess Don Doler had more of an interest in um, special effects anyway. So he he mentions this in the documentary. He wasn't he didn't need to direct. He so he was happy to get out of that. Um, so Joe Ripple's films uh, are more gore and nudity, and uh, yeah, they're just not that interesting. I don't find a few things to check out. Check out the show notes because I've got lots of resources in there. Um, like links to, if you want to watch the Don Dolor films and you don't want to buy them, you can go to his, not his, but there's a Don Dolor films channel on YouTube. Um, so there's a link in the show notes. Um, I also put links in the show notes to sidfield.com and Sidfield's book on Amazon, all his books. So we're approaching the end of season one, the Predictably Treacherous podcast. Next week will be the final episode of season one. Okay, we'll be back for season two. Don't worry, fan out there. Um, we'll be back. 
I'm not going to be back in uh, doing Columbo season two. So in season two of the Predictable Treacherous podcast, we're going to do season one of Banachek. Okay. Um, but in season three, we'll probably come back to Columbo season two. So just, just hold on. If you like Columbo, Banachek is great. It's, it's different from Columbo, but it's 70s, misogynistic bullshit. It's great. Just join me. It's going to be fun. Um, but like I say, next week we're going to do one last uh, movie-ish kind of episode and we'll get into Banachek in season two of the Predictably Treacherous podcast a week after that. And when I say week, I mean four to six weeks. Now, I'm going to try and make them more frequent. This doing every six to eight weeks is just nonsense. I got to stop that. I've got to get more frequent. But that'll come through time. Thanks for joining us. Thank <laughs> you.